have, you know, have fish thrown at us at Pike Place Market <laughs> and things like that. <laughs> Welcome to the Exploring Washington State podcast. Here's your host, Scott Cowan. All right, everyone. Welcome to this episode of the Exploring Washington State podcast. My guest today is Brian Nairn. And before we get started, I I need to tell Brian something. Uh, Brian, you are the first repeat guest on the show. Out of uh, over 140 some episodes that we've recorded, you are the first person to come back for an encore. Wow, that's great. I don't know. I don't know if that's something you should be embarrassed by or proud of, but Wands, we did four, we did four shows with Wands, but those were sequential uh, dealing with decades. You were here last year about your, your Metalworks um, book. And now we're back uh, to talk about um, building an empire, your, the story of Queensryche. But the other thing, and I don't know if we covered this last time, but you are also the person out of all the guests that I've known the longest. This is true. So it's just kind of, kind of, not, you're not the oldest, you're not the oldest guest, but uh, I've known you the longest. So for that, I apologize in advance, but <laughs> welcome back. Welcome back, Brian. Yeah, thanks. And thanks, Scott. So let's catch up. Uh, last time we talked, you published a, a yellow page of size book on the heavy metal scene in the Northwest. And it was uh, quite interesting to talk to you about that. How, how did, yeah, how did that book go for you guys? Uh, it is going still. Awesome. Um, okay. We did a limited edition of uh, 50 hardbacks with a slip cover numbered, autographed by several people who did interviews with us. Um, but we have sold over 1,100 of the paperbacks, uh, which is, which is um, surprising and gratifying all at the same time. Uh, because it's such a niche book talking about the Northwest, um, you know, we found a thousand people that uh, really wanted to know more about the Pacific Northwest hard rock and metal scene. And um, not so surprising is, um, I don't know the percentage, but I know there's a really healthy percentage of those book sales that were in Europe. Oh, very cool. Okay. All right. Well, first off, congratulations. A self-published book, 1,100 sales. That's that's really significant. Um, I know a lot of people that have uh, published books, and writing a book is not something that you will get rich from doing. No. Unless you are one of the, you know, 1% of the 1%, you know, niche things. So very cool. Building an empire. Where was... Where did how did this happen? What 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 did you guys decide to do uh, this this book and yeah? What was the let's just let's start there. What was your uh, your background? Well, a- after spending six and a half years on the rusted metal because it was such a a huge undertaking, it was uh, more time and editing than we thought we were ever going to do. Um, <laughs> but we were like so energized by the time it was done. Uh, James and I look at each other. James Beach, uh, the main writer of the book, was just like, well, what's next? 
And immediately, immediately, Queensryche came to our our minds. Um, the band um, is 40 years in and have never had a, a biography written about them. And um, I know quite a bit about the band and have followed the band since really their inception before they were actually Queensryche. So it seemed like that was the natural, uh, the natural direction to go. We had talked about maybe doing a line of Northwest hard rock metal books on different bands. And that's what we plan on doing in the future. Okay. Well, we'll come, we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that when we're done talking about this one then. So 40 years in, no biography. That does seem a little weird in today's media crazed, you know, every band that's been around for a decades released, you know, some, you know, there's always stuff about them all. So, but this was an unauthorized biography, right? Yeah. You guys, you guys weren't, so you didn't have the quote unquote official blessing of, of the members of the band. That's correct. So, so how was it to gain, gain access to the materials? How did that work for you guys? Um, well, first and foremost, I, like I was saying, I've, I've been a, a fan of the band um, since before they were called Queensryche. Um, and uh, Brian Heaton, our other writer, um, he had a message board and then a, he has a website dedicated to the band. And um, uh, we've James uh, has been a fan for a long time as well. And we just um, we just decided that you know this was the book we were going to do. Um, the band um, we tried to get the band's attention about the Rusted Metal book to see if they'd like to do some interviews. Um, we didn't even get a decline. They they just never really answered us back. We went through um, management uh, through their social media person. Um, I am friends with some of their friends, and so they knew about it. Um, mm -hmm. They just opted not to do it, which is fine. I mean, there's a lot of biographies that are written uh, where the band isn't participating, um, but it was it was not difficult to get the information we needed. In, in fact, it was probably easier to do this book without the band and, and trying to um, get inter get certain quotes from them and information from them. Um, while they weren't as huge as the Rolling Stones and ACDC, uh, they were a pretty, pretty big band. And for years and years, they did a lot of interviews. And so there was a lot of material out there um, on the, on the webs, but even in just the materials that I had collected and, and had, um, there was just a, pl a, a plethora of quotes. So, so we were able to take with the permission of the writers of these articles, um, we were able to build our narrative through the mm -hmm. quotes that those gentlemen had, had spoken since 1983. <coughs> Excuse okay. me. And then um, we also, even though we didn't have the band's direct participation in this, we did have some family members. We had some friends. We had former employees. We had promoters. We had friends uh, and, and um, people kind of in the business 
who are more than willing to talk to us and give mm -hmm. us some really great information, um, tell us some really fun stories. Um, our goal was to um, to tell a story that was more than the stock narrative about this band. Eastside band, you know, put out their own record, caught the eye of this person and away they went. Um, there was just so much more to talk about, uh, sort of to, to build the story. And with my, with my connections to the band and Brian Heaton's connections to the band, um, both kind of in business and, and um, just in fandom, um, you know, there was just a lot of, we just had a lot of resources at our fingertips as it were. Okay. So how long it was, uh, so you mentioned earlier, the other book was what, six, six years plus in, in the making? Six years from the first interview till the last edit. Yeah. But it was 902 yeah. pages. Well, this one's 300 and some, Brian. You, you, I was going to give you give you a hard time saying, you know, are you selling the books by the pound? Because these are these are not quick little little reads for people. These are these are massive tomes, which yeah. is great. Yeah. Uh, well, um, <laughs> again, it's uh, um, you know we could have made the the book bigger, but you know it's uh, it worked out good. <laughs> it worked out good at the size it was in. Um, uh, Repeat that question again. Well, how long did it take you for the Queensryche book, for Building an Empire? How long was it from, you know, com, com, the team committing, like, yeah. we're going to do this, to to the last So, edit? So the rest of Metal Book came out in November of... Came out in November of uh, 2020. But we had, we'd finished writing it back in July of 19 but it took okay. a year and a half to edit it. Uh, when, when, <laughs> when COVID, when COVID hit, um, I had just started a new job and suffice it to say, um, they had to circle the wagons. And so, um, they laid me off after a couple of weeks. Okay. Uh, and, and so I had all this time on my hands, uh, to try to find another job, certainly. Um, but I was off 17 weeks from work. Mm -hmm. And that was about the time uh, James and I were talking about, boy, this is, it doesn't get any better. You know, while we're waiting for the edits and the book being printed, let's start the next book. And so in March of 2020, um, we started writing. Um, okay. um, we already had kind of a framework within uh, about two weeks. And um, we just sort of started hanging hanging stuff off the tree as it were. Um, mm -hmm. and so we finished, we finished writing the book, um, the last week of June of 21 and, okay. um, did the, did the final edits by the second week of uh, July. And then the book went to press. We got it, to, we got it to mid October in time of, for an event that we, hosted a signing event that we hosted. Were you guys able to actually have the event? Were you with COVID? We did. Were you able to? We did. Okay. Uh -huh. And, you know, okay. we just, uh, we had masks and hand sanitizer and asked people to, you know, observe, uh, you know, everybody yeah. else's space. And, and um, 
the event was uh, was kind of like a uh, a tribute to the band. Uh, uh, we mm-hmm. called it the uh, Reichian Archives. So it was a, a convention room full of memorabilia, like a museum. To Queen. And where was that? Where did you guys hold that at? Um, we held that uh, up in Snohomish. Um, the band was playing at the Snoqualmie Casino on the 23rd of October. And mm-hmm. um, we were uh, at a, um, a hotel um, less than 10 minutes away from the venue um, hosting uh, our first book signing and, and then mm-hmm. showing off uh, a pretty sizable collection of Queensryche music memorabilia. Okay. Well, we've, you know, the, we, you and I have talked before off, off mic and all that about, about your record collection and your, your memorabilia collection, which I'm still trying to, you know, peel pieces away from you here and there. Um, well, we'll talk about that later. Um, but was a lot of the, was a lot that was being displayed yours or was it, was it, from the from both from all your authors or were you gathering and curating from other collectors? Um, or? Uh, we did have we did have uh, four under four other people who brought some items uh, with them to this event. Uh, uh, Brian from uh, Sacramento he he brought a few things. Um, another super fan who lives in Puyallup uh, let us use some things, and then uh, probably one of the bigger. Uh, collectors uh, from Peoria, Illinois, uh, Mike the Riker. He uh, he brought a bunch of stuff out, and so it was five of us who had, you know, parts of our collection. But most of it was mine. Yes. So people are bringing stuff from Illinois to a. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. That's really cool. So did you guys go to the show that they were we playing did. then? Okay. We did, and uh, we so, were able to hand over some books. Uh, to a couple of members of the band, and uh, we, um, I believe everyone has gotten one of the books, all of the original members, okay. and um, and a couple of the new members have gotten copies okay. of the book, and um, we did get some feedback through a family member that um, uh, that at least one of them thought it was a pretty fair telling of their story and was uh, was okay. not disappointed and fairly happy with it, how it turned out. Okay. So for someone who's not a Queensryche fan, why don't you give us the Queensryche for Dummies version of their career? Sure. So let's let's yeah, let's just kind of do this the, the career arc here. It, as as told by Brian Yard. Okay. Well, um, the East side Bellevue area, Redmond was kind of a hotbed in the early eighties, um, for music, uh, hard rock, uh, metal. And there were a few places there, but primarily we're talking about the Lake Hills, uh, roller rink. Um, that venue had been open since the, since the fifties hosting skating and, and, uh, and then live music um, from the 50s on up. And these five original guys all met at some point about 1981. Um, mm-hmm. 
Jeff Tate, the singer, was from Tacoma, um, but really of the world. He was born in Germany. Um, his family did some moving. Uh, uh, his father worked for the, the government. and um, But the rest of the members of the band, um, for most of their formative years, were in the um, Bellevue-Redmond area. And um, they... The five of them all were uh, drawn to music, to the instruments, either because, um, you know, they had older siblings that were into music or they had friends. Um, these guys um, saw each other play in other bands. And, and the thing about these five were that they were exceptional performers, exceptional players who somehow found them, found the others, and um, they were the best of the best of what they did. Um, Jeff, Jeff mm -hmm. Tate uh, has got a soaring voice, um, and everybody wanted Jeff in their band. And um, and the two guitar players will, were um, well-practiced, um, had just real natural skills. Um, mm -hmm. Bass player and the drummer, um, uh, Eddie and Scott were, you know, just phenomenal players. They were just the best players in their community and they happened to get together and, um, they put together a tape, um, that was unlike, um, the quality of music that most bands from this area, um, were able to play because they, they were just superior musicians and the songwriting was, was really good. And, um, I mean, I remember hearing the tape for the first time in easy street records. Um, the guys had had the tape and they're kind of schlepping it around and, um, giving it, going to record stores, see if anybody's interested in wanting to maybe help them distribute the tape. Um, I just happened to be, uh, I just happened to be an easy street records in on bell red road, uh, one day and Kim Harris, who was the owner of the store, um, he said to me, he says, you want to hear this band? I'm thinking about per, um, managing. And I'm like, sure, of course. And, um, uh, Kim and his wife, Diana, uh, Vaughn, um, had been, uh, pretty big players in the, uh, the music, um, community as far as, uh, um, promotion of, of bands and, and artistic direction of bands. Um, Kim had college, uh, um, college records, which was in the, in the Av, and then he moved it, uh, out to Bell Red Road and called it Easy Street. So he puts this tape in on this, the, the house speakers, and it's a four song tape which became the, what's called the 206 EP. And, um, when the, when the music was over, I kind of giggled and I looked at him and I said, uh, local band, huh? And he says, yeah, these guys, these are, this is the real deal. These guys are local. And I, I, you know, I, I've heard a lot of local music and there was just never anybody that is good as this. I mean, this was like professional recording, 
Um, their songwriting was so good. The singer was so great. And he says, no, these guys are the real deal. They're called The Mob, and they've got this guy who filled in and was singing on it. And um, I, I think it's great. And, and uh, Diana and I are going to, we're going to try to, we're going to try to get somebody to listen to this and put the, you know, um, what they ended up doing is they took a, a shopping junket to Europe and they went to the offices of Kerrang! magazine and, um, which was a premier hard rock metal magazine out of, out of the, uh, out of England at the time. And they dropped off a copy of the tape. It ended up on a pile of, you know, a whole bunch of other tapes <laughs> of bands who wanted to be heard. Um, fortunately for them, uh, a writer for them named Paul Suter picked up the tape, listened to it. And in one of the next couple of issues, he wrote a half page article about he has seen the future of heavy metal. And it's this band called Queen Drake out of the state of Washington. Uh, and just on the strength of this review, um, mm -hmm. the uh, Easy Street started getting bombarded with letters and postcards. No one had heard this. No one had heard this music. But just mm -hmm. based on uh, a writer who people listened to, you know, they got all this interest. So, so uh, Kim and Diana decided to press. Uh, the record up independently and um, and they just sold them out and they printed up some more and they sold them out. Uh, eventually, eventually, um, you know, Seattle and Portland radio started playing the snot out of the EP. And um, let, let me yeah. interrupt you. What's what Seattle stations pick the pick the EP up? Was that KSW? KSW and KZOK. Uh, KUFO and KGON in Portland. And then there was a couple of radio stations actually in Texas um, okay. that, that picked it up and really ran with it. Um, so uh, they got on, um, they, they had actually won a contest um, to get a video done. And um, through that, um, they were asked to open up uh, a couple of shows, a couple of rising star shows in the early 80s. It was a series of shows um, where bands would come in and that for a dollar or two, you could buy a ticket and you could see Tom Petty or Angel City or Sammy Hagar in their formative years. And uh, mm -hmm. a band called Zebra was doing a show in Portland and Seattle. And um, it wasn't selling very well. And they announced Queensryche. Um was the opener and they sold out both shows just, just because of the radio play they've gotten in those two cities. They, they sold that both those shows out in less than 24 hours after that. So question, let me interrupt yeah. you question here. So rising star shows, we, we talked about those before mm -hmm. you and I have attended several of them and all that. But when I was reading through the book, was I correct in picking up that, it wasn't just the rising stars just weren't in Seattle. They actually did the same sort of series in Portland as well with a, with another radio station. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think I, I, think I, those, I had no I idea. Think some of those were also like in the West coast, uh, you know, San Francisco. Hmm. Yeah. I, I always just, 
assumed that it was just KISW's brilliant idea, and uh, which is really naive of me when I think about, oh, yeah, so so a band will just come up to Seattle. They got nothing better to do than come to go play at the Paramount. Yeah. Okay. All right. So so they so Zebra wasn't selling real well, so they put Queensryche on, and they sold yep. out. And away we yeah, go. and so and so it just built from there. So um, with the with the experience that Kim and Diana had with managing bands, and um, they knew the right people. Um, the EP, of course, is amazing for those who have listened to it um, and still listen to it. Um, on the, just on the strength of that EP and the the experience and guile of Kim and Diana, um, they set mm-hmm. in motion, um, the band or the band got, they got onto some tours and, um, they just started winning over people and, um, um, they, so as just time went on, you know, they did their first album in, in England and, and, um, that got them more notoriety and, uh, they just kept touring because that's what bands have to do. You got to get in front of people because that's one, that's how they get known. And two, that's where you make your money is out on the road because, you know, record sales, you get a penny or two for sale and, and move on. And um, so they just built it. They just built it uh, as they went along and they got better tours and, you know, uh, eventually, uh, uh, Kim and Diana parted company with Queensryche as far as management um, due to all the usual reasons and also because, you know, the band was outgrowing them and, and wanted to go with uh, someone who could really, like, get them into the stratosphere. And, and that's what they ended up doing. They got signed by Q Prime, uh, the same management company uh, uh, like Metallica had. Um, mm-hmm. And um, so they got them bigger tours and more exposure on award shows. But that happens too, because you, you're good songwriters and you, you develop your craft and you, um, you reach more people. And the thing about the band too, is they, they never stayed the same. They never sort of repeated the same record. Um, and sometimes that was a, that was a, uh, a surprise, uh, for a lot of people, because the you know, some people, some fans like it the same way. They just want the music to never change, and and they were you know they were explorers. They were looking to um, stretch the limits of of progressive music, and and they, they've made a good career out of of doing that. And um, like like all bands, they're like families. You've got you know you've got <laughs> ups, you got downs, and um, people have come and gone, um, but they're still, they're still an entity and they've got some new players in the mix and they're still putting out quality music. So, uh, Chris DeGarmo. So the only two names that I remember are DeGarmo and, and Jeff Tate. I don't, that's, and I'm not, you know, I, I can name maybe three or four of their songs. So I am yeah. not, you know, a Queensryche fan. When did, when did, when did DeGarmo leave the band? Cause he was the first member to he, leave, right? Yes. Um, Chris, Chris okay. DeGarmo started the band. Um, he was the main songwriter. 
um, through his through his uh, development as a songwriter, um, that raised the band um, quite a ways. Um, and as the band got more popular and and you know internal and external pressures as far as you've got to do another record, you know they want to do something different, but they certainly want to keep stepping up the ladder. Um, mm-hmm. they, he kept he kept producing. He kept kind of the base of the band going. And uh, Michael Wilton uh, was another strong songwriter in, in the band. Uh, Jeff Tate wrote a lot of lyrics. Um, Eddie Jackson and Scott Rockenfield, uh, bass and drummer. Um, they did some writing, but they weren't as prominent um, in the band early on. Um, and they, um, they, again, you know, they were... They were playing bigger venues and 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 creating more music, more complex music. You know, these guys are starting to make some money, um, but they didn't. You know, they didn't do headline. They didn't do headlining tours on their own for extended periods of time until after the Operation Mindcrime album. So that they'd been a band. They'd been a band for six or seven years, really, before they they carried the load as it were. But in that time, you know, you start making some money, you start buying houses and cars and you find your first and second and third wives and, and, um, um, all, all the things that go along with that and kids and, and, um, and then, um, invariably, um, people want different things, you know, it used to be a, a band of five and, and then everybody's got different expectations. They've got different pressures. Um, um, they, they can't contribute like they used to or what have you. It's just like, again, like a family. And um, right. I think with Chris, he got down to uh, 1997, um, the Here and the Now Frontier album. Um, again, really diverse record, real different, stripped down. Um he had been taking on a lot more of the songwriting over the course of of uh, the album before, which was uh, Empire and and Promised Land. Um, he was carrying more of the load while other people were, um, you know, working together. But, you know, it was becoming clear that he was kind of uh, the engineer of the, of the train kind of thing. And um, I think it got to the point where he was carrying too much of the load and was seeing how the rest of the band were having difficulties maintaining um, their personal lives, uh, their financial lives, um, even maybe uh, their musical, you know, wellspring was, were drying up. Um, and he made a, a personal decision um, to step away. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, he's never, he's never said why, and he probably never will. Um, this is, this band, um, this band has always been very, um, quiet about their business. Um, most of the, most of the stuff that went on with the band, uh, a lot of people just never knew about, um, because they, they, they kept it to themselves. Um, Mm-hmm. Some of us know things because we know people and know the band and 
um, have first and second and third hand information. Um, but you know, when we wrote the book, we chose to, um, keep it a positive book and keep the messiness out of it. I mean, we're, we, we didn't want to do a salacious book at all. We just wanted to celebrate the, the band and, and, um, book is definitely about perseverance, um, about building something and, and losing a part of it, whether it be a member uh, of the band leaving um, uh, and then building back and, um, and, and still creating, you know, quality music. And, um, and they still, you know, they still have a fan base that's pretty loyal. And, um, but yeah, Chris decided to go in 97. He had, in the meantime, had, learned to fly airplanes and and now is a commercial pilot and owns a couple of planes and and um uh life needed to be quieter for chris DeGarmo. and um but the band continued on they they um enlisted an old friend uh musician uh, producer kelly gray to take over for him um they spent a few years together creating an album um, and then Kelly, um, ended up just being more of a, um, songwriter and producer for the band. And, and, you know, they've had a, a, a succession of, uh, three additional guitar players over the course of 90 from 99 to, um, 2021, uh, you okay. know, just, uh, right. and, uh, Jeff Tate, uh, Jeff Tate is no longer in the band. Um, in 2012, the um, the last remaining three members of the original mob band um, had come to an impasse with um, Jeff and and management and uh, decided to fire him. And uh, it's well documented in the book, uh, a lot of the reasons why. And uh, nothing, nothing that's not you know, been, well, I, I remember impressed. just hearing, you know, that, yeah, that they went, they went to court and for a while, both groups could use the name Queensryche mm-hmm. and then they ultimately settled and things like that. And, you know, that's un, unfortunately, that's not the first time we've heard of a band member suing another band member and uh, creative differences and life gets in the way. People grow in different sure. ways. So, I'm gonna I'm gonna pause you on your story and put you on okay. the spot. How many how many times have you seen Queensrÿche? Uh, thirty four times. Are you sure? Not thirty three, not thirty five. Are you it's sure 34. it's thirty four? Okay. <laughs> I just I just documented my last show. Yeah. Okay, so you've documented your okay. When was the first time you saw? Them and where was that at? Uh, it was uh, it was in October of nineteen eighty three when the band. Um, was on, they were on basically their first big tour. They opened up for Ronnie James Dio at the Paramount. And okay. um, so that's the first time I got to see them live. Yes. How is How are they live? Are they a good band live? They're a, they're a great band. They're exceptional. Um, even even in the years where maybe the, the album output, the songs were not as strong as their heyday um they were always really fine musicians 
always putting out a good quality live uh, performance. And even the even the players who have come in uh, over time to replace members, the original members who have moved on, um, all top notch performers. So yes, so they're they're always really really good. Um, that's okay. that's one of the things that makes that band you know exceptional is the, the their ability uh to play well so 34 shows you saw them at the paramount where else have you seen them at in washington i are, i guess out of 34 have they all been in washington or have you have you followed them anywhere well, i've else? seen them a few times in oregon but most of my most of the times that i've seen them yes they've been in the the state of washington um i've seen them uh i've seen them play or members of the band play um, the Coliseum. Um, I've seen them at uh, the catwalk. And um, when, when Jeff did a solo gig, it was a little goth club uh, down by Occidental park. Um, I've seen uh, Michael Wilton's um, uh, soul bender at rock sport. Uh, in West Seattle. Okay. Uh, but most of the time that they've, um, I saw them at NAF Studios when they introduced uh, their new guitar player um, in 1999. Um, but yeah, it's usually been the arena or the Coliseum or the Paramount or more theater. Did you ever see them at the Gorge or Tacoma? I, um, I saw them no. in Tacoma one time when they were opening up for ACDC in 86. Oh, you, you make reference to I the do. book. Um, well, I sort of saw them for so, a couple of songs. Right. So I'll just go on record and say I don't like shows at the Tacoma Dome. I just don't. Yeah. I've seen, I just, there's something about that venue that I, no, just, no, it's not, pass. yeah, it's not my favorite venue. Yeah. Um, did you ever, did you see them at the Gorge? I did not. Um, I, okay. I, I, the, the couple of tours where they did the Gorge shows, I opted for the Portland show. I was just curious how, so where I'm going with this line of, of, of interrogation is how are they on a, on a really, an, in a really big setting? So like the Gorge, the Comedome, those are, those are, well, it's still Seattle center. Um, are they better like at the Paramount or the more for perform? I mean, I think I, does that make yeah, sense? I know, I, I know exactly what you're saying. Remorse. I think I think that they're they could play anywhere, and um, they reach people the same way. It, you know, it's like uh, if you're in a big arena. There's some bands you're even if you're in the nosebleed, you're like, wow, you're just. Um, I see them down there, and but you know, I, I'm not having this experience. I feel like I could have just stayed home and watched TV. Mm-hmm. Um, but they they were always the kind of band that. Um, you know, they, when Jeff would sing or Todd Latore now, I mean, they're singing to the guy in the back seat, in the back row. I mean, they, they, mm-hmm. they usually put on a, a, a good live performance. They usually, um, mix in the live music with multimedia, um, um, going ons behind them, projection screens and lighting, uh, that's usually pretty creative and unique. Um, you know, nothing beats seeing a band in an intimate setting, of course, like, you know, the Moore Theater, or, um, even a smaller venue. Um, but some bands, some bands can project better in big arenas. 
um, Kiss, Iron Maiden. I mean, those are mm-hmm. uh, Rush did. I mean, like with Rush, I I don't know that I'd want to be in the first two rows. I I always liked Rush <laughs> further back because you could take it all in, and and Queensrÿche mm-hmm. has always done a really good job of um, present, presenting the inform, their 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 music with with the visual element, and and part of that is because some of their music, especially Operation Mindcrime, um, which was a, a concept album, um, but a lot of their music is thematic, so um, the visual imagery helps tell the story as they're performing it. And it, you know, it just makes for a a much better experience. I'm, uh, I'm on page 192 of your book. Can you tell me what's on that page? No, I can't. I don't need to. Um, uh, but basically it it says here, uh, when Queensryche reached its commercial pinnacle in the early nineties, many hard car Rikers became just like the deadheads, fish heads and rush rats before them. Um, Having gone to many Grateful Dead shows and a lot of fish shows, uh, did you have you did you ever go to a dead show? Have I have not been to a dead show. Did you ever go? Did you ever see fish? No. Okay, I know you saw Rush, and I I saw Rush in 1980, and I don't recall. Um, did you go with us to? Did you go with Don Cook? To, did you go in 1980? I did go. With, I went with Kevin Corp, Dale Riker, and. Um, the fourth person escapes me. I don't remember who it was. Yeah, Don 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 Cook and I and I don't remember who. Don oh, it was Cook Dale Hazeman. Oh my gosh, there's yeah. a name I haven't heard in a long time. The four of us. Oh, okay. We won't we won't go down the Franklin <laughs> Pierce High School uh, re- reunion tour for for this episode. So what was it like? I mean, was there kind of in your opinion because you saw him so many times? Was there this kind of fan culture that existed outside of the venues before a show? Um, yeah. Yeah. There, um, there was, and, and is to some extent, not, not so much now, but, um, yeah, they, you know, the, uh, a lot of, a lot of my friends these days, are, um, I have a number of friends that I've met through Queensryche, um, people from other parts of the country, um, who would come out here to see Seattle and, and and the band did a pretty good job of of doing like fan events, and um, they would um, they would have fan club only shows where they would uh, um, debut new music. Um, but fans just themselves in general would just get together. They'd want to come to Seattle, and we were all kind of networking even before the internet. And uh, you know we'd meet up and. You know, we'd go up to Seattle and do the Space Needle and go to uh, Snoqualmie Falls and have, you know, have fish thrown at us at Pike Place Market and things like that. Um, and so right. us being local, we we would be hosting these people from several, you know, from different countries in the world and every state in the union. Um, and the the band recognized that. And in the early 90s, the early nineties. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to remember when they officially started it. There was some, there was some rumblings in the early mid nineties about getting uh, through the fan club. They called them empires. And that was a play on mm-hmm. the album empire um, where they would local chapters of the fan club would uh, develop their own logo. 
um, they would elect officers, they would have meetings, and oftentimes um, they were getting together to go to shows when the band would come to their their town, but they were also getting together and doing charity work and cleanups and and um, and that kind of thing, and and just um, Queensrÿche being kind of the focal point. And they'd sort of report in about what they were doing, and and in the in the fan club magazines, uh, they would um, spotlight different uh, empires across the country and the world, uh, and just talk about what they were doing. And and they always, you know, the fans were always an extension of the band, so to speak. And um, so the band kind of went with that, and um, you know, helped create this this community, and. Um, um, that was kind of unique in in the sense of you know it seemed to be a little a little bit more organized and uh, after a while and less organic but um, but the band was always kind of ahead of the curve when it came to technology um, they were one of the first bands to um, to embrace the internet and and use the internet for um, communicating with with the fans, with um, getting involved with software uh, for gaming um, related to the band, um, <laughs> even just the you know some in, you know instrumentation they developed uh, with with, um, with partnering up with Epiphone and and some other guitar makers uh, to create some um, unique. Um, guitars uh, for them and and other other um, recording equipment. So the band has always just kind of been on the cutting edge of 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 technology and and social media. And uh, again, kind of interesting because the band has always been real quiet. Again, they've always mm-hmm. just kept it about the band and not about the band's business, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was reading. I mean, there, there, I, we laugh technology doesn't age well right and so there's the the queen's cd-rom game and it's just kind of you kind of chuckle at the how outdated that sounds yeah. but if you go back to when that was when when that was released that was very kind it of was age. and uh, and and there was yeah. a and there was an unreleased song that if you got through it all you got to hear this song that was only available CD-ROM. See, that's, Unfortunately, that's, put the CD-ROM in my computer now, and it doesn't do anything. Right, but the cool thing when you think about this is that they, well, I just I just appreciate the fact that they were leveraging technology as it was advancing throughout their career. You know, you think about this band launches in '83; they're still playing in 2022. Forty years of technology improvements. Uh, you know. When you saw them in '83, did you hold a lighter up? And now, and now we all hold our cell right. phones up with, <laughs> with a fake lighter, you know. And it's you know, and then I was you know, you mentioned or it's mentioned in the book uh, they had a taping section, which just sounds quaint, doesn't it? Uh, taping section. Um, wouldn't go to. We used to go to a lot of dead shows, and they had oh, their yeah. own taping section, and it was absolutely comical. The how geeky the, the people were. It was typically guys. So I'll say guys, how geeky the guys were taping a dead show. Right. And so I can only imagine Queensryche had 
similar similar geekiness about it. And now, once again, I hold up my my iPhone, and you know, uh, it's all right here in a device that's in the palm of my hand, and we're all just like, yeah, okay. And so they've adapted, and they were they were going on because one of the things you guys reference is that one I don't know what tour it was, I can't remember that, but uh, the multimedia was laser discs, and I just chuckle because I haven't thought of, you know thought of a laser disc in you know twenty mm-hmm. years, but back in the day, those were super high tech. Oh, yeah. You know, when they first came out, that was pretty crazy. Yeah. Um, and so the band is always, you know, I think they've always been looking to be different, always looking at what can they do to help enhance their sound and their look. And um, certainly their look has gone from from being cliche to garish to, you know, um uh, well, they're in their they're you know they're in their fifties, if not sixty. Yeah, oh, yeah, all these guys, all these guys are at sixty or a little older now. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, it, the the long hair and the leather pants uh, don't look good when you're. Yeah, well, they still no. wear it pretty well, but. Um, yeah. I see. Yeah, but anyway, you know, yeah. it's, I I I sure wouldn't pull that look off. We we'll all be thankful <laughs> that I don't try to pull that look off. Yeah. Um, I don't want. I we're obviously not going to give away too much of the book, so people people can obviously, you know, they should check it out because it's 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 I it's in it's it's in depth. Let's put mm-hmm. it that way. It's in depth, and I, I think you guys once again did a a fabulous job of documenting Washington uh, State uh, band and all of that. So I want to put you, Brian Naren, on the spot. I had a, a, a and do you know a guitar player by the name of Chris Klemecki? I do not. Do you know Chris? Okay, so Chris is a Chris, is a guy out of Seattle, and uh, he's uh, currently playing guitar in a band called Grieve the Astronaut, which is a friend of mine's uh, band and kind of a prog rock. Um, quite an interesting mm-hmm. project it's it's very very cool uh, they're doing a really cool job so chris and i when we were talking he he uh, so i'm gonna ask you i'm gonna ask you your answer to this question and then i got another one for you so he shared and i can't remember what he shared with uh, what his favorite van halen song was and uh and so i shared what my my favorite van halen song was which was doa mm-hmm. which he kind of he kind of looked at me like really like that's a odd favorite van halen song so Question to you, first off, your favorite Van Halen song? Um, you know, it's got to be Eruption. Yeah. Okay. I mean, that's I mean, that's All the right. first thing I ever heard, uh, and it yeah. just blew yeah. my mind. And <laughs> I went out and bought the eight track from from the school from the school uh, uh, the the school uh, store. Yeah. The, okay. All right. I won't ask you your favorite Queensryche song because that's probably a. I don't want to put you on the spot. How about this one? What's your What's their most underrated song in your opinion? Most underrated song? Yeah, there's a ton of them. Um, okay. Um, I think uh, all I want from uh, here in the now frontier. Um, it's a. It's the one and only song that. Uh, Chris DeGarmo did vocals on, played piano. Uh, it sounds like John Lennon. Amazing, amazing mm. song. 
and um, okay. um, Surgical Strike from Rage for Order. Uh, it's really powerful, really techno um, heavy, uh, really ahead of its time song. Um, most of most of Promised Land um, was an album that came out in nineteen. Uh, the end of 1994, uh, early 95, um, really dark and brooding album. Um, boy, there, there's, there's, there's a lot of music out there uh, from that band that um, could have and should have been singles, but, but weren't. Okay. Well, since you kind of said you'd answer the question, what, what's your favorite Queen's well, the first, song? The first song I think about, the first song I think about is Take Hold of the Flame from the warning and it's it's basically a song about hope it's a song about you know reaching out for what you want and 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 doing whatever it takes to get it and and uh, you know and that was a that was something that was it's important in every generation you know um i i i every generation has its challenges and um I think there there always has to be a a take hold of the flame. There always has to be, you know, a song of hope. You know that it's it as dark as it might be. Um, there's always going to be this light you can get after and and you know make it right and 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 live in that. And so that's what that song always meant to me. Okay. In doing a little bit of prep for this conversation, I was on Queen's Rights website and looking around and listening to some music most, most of the afternoon today. And I see that they're playing in Everett in, in opening up for Judas Priest shortly. Yep. So I think it's, I think it's interesting. Now granted, this is Judas Priest 50th anniversary. (laughs) I mean, that's kind of mind boggling Mm -hmm. when you think about it. Um, but isn't it why it put you know why do you think that they're still willing to open up for these iconic metal bands? I mean, I would think that they have earned the right to be the headliners themselves. Is it? Do you think that it's because they pay you know they pay tribute to to the influences? Um, you know, partly that is um, they gave up their opening slot in a Vegas um, residency for next March with the Scorpions to do this priest tour. Um, I think, I think that kind of where they're at is as a band where their popular, where their, their popularity is where their demographic is. um, I think it's important to, to, to sort of group up bands and certainly you know, uh, Judas Priest has seniority, um, but for Queensrÿche, it it it's um, it's less costly to tour that way, but get the message out. So I think you know, I think it's a, a good package, and I think that they're they're looking to reach more people because they're they're trying to build again. Um, they're okay. nowhere near where they used to be, and probably never will. Um, so it it's smart money to go on tour. Um, and they usually do their own headlining tours and having, uh, newer or less popular bands open up for them. 
but this is an opportunity for them to do a world tour and not have to pay for it out of their own pocket. Oh, okay. That makes, that makes sense. I hadn't thought about in those terms. What's, well, let's, we're going to, we're going to put a pin in Queensryche here because, and we haven't even scratched the surface, man. I'm scrolling, I'm scrolling through your book here and I'm just like, wow. And so where did most of the graphics in this book come from? I mean, I'm looking at a lot of concert uh, posters, ticket stubs, you know, uh, some of them, like this one's credited to Brian uh, Woodwick. Um, But where is this? Where do you get them? Where you guys, is this all from your guys' collections? Um, it, you know, it's uh, some things from our collections. Some things were promotional materials. You mentioned Brian Woodwick, who's a, um, I think of him as a pretty prominent photographer in the Pacific Northwest, but I think he's a bit underground. Um, uh, but he does fabulous work and, and he was more than willing uh, and eager really for us to um, show off some of his work in our book. Um, we, um, we got permissions um, from um, uh, Richard Galbraith uh, to use um, pictures in the book, uh, back page pictures. Of course, we paid him a, a fee, um, but he could have charged a, a great deal more money. Um, but we struck a bargain and he really loved the, the project. Um, the cover art, um, the picture, um, of the band was an was a, a, an original from a uh, uh, another photographer um, popular in, in the eighties, uh, Robert John. Um, our digital our digital um, artist and guy who um, put the book together for us did the um, did the logos and the dark clouds in the background and there's a few little Easter eggs in the in the uh, picture. And um, uh, so we, you know, we, um, we gathered up images um, that we felt would help us tell the story. Um, We borrowed, we asked, we paid. um, And, um, and yeah, again, a lot of this was from my collection. A lot of this was from other people's collections um, who were again, eager to, uh, um, to supply them and uh, get credit for them. And, you know, our contributors received uh, um, copies of the book and thank yous. And, and, um, and the one thing too, uh, going into this book, um, like I mentioned earlier, we wanted to tell a more expanded story, a more um, deep um, enriching kind of story about the band. Cause they'd always just had this, like I say, a stock story. Um, but we really wanted to make sure that we gave the people, the readers, the fans information and images they'd never seen before. And uh, I learned a ton. I mean, I thought I knew a bunch about this band, but uh, the time we spent writing this book and doing the research, I learned so much more about my favorite band. So tell me, tell, tell me something you learned that caught you by surprise. Um, well, you know, just we we learned we I learned uh, some things about how they went about doing some recordings, uh, the amount amounts of money they spent uh, on these recordings. You know, it's crazy for you know they spent thirty thousand dollars to record three seconds of underwater drums. 
Yeah. What? Yeah. Or, you know, there's, a, you know, without giving away <laughs> things, um, you know, there's these, there's the four images of the band when they first went to England. Um, they're in Heathrow Airport. And these were images that were supplied to us by another um, collector, probably the biggest collector of Queen's Drag, Thomas Broglie. He's in Switzerland. And he had purchased a lot of uh, Queensryche memorabilia. And at the bottom of the box were these four photos. And, um, and no one had ever seen them before, but they were pictures of the band, um, them walking through the airport and at customs. And it, it, was, it was things like that where, um, you know, we wanted to, we wanted the casual fan to go, oh, wow, this is pretty neat. I'm learning stuff. But we wanted the hardcore fan to also go, oh, my gosh, I had no idea about this. Um, another f one of my favorite things that we learned, um, there's always been this uh, assumption that when the, the first band, the mob, which were um, Chris, Michael, Scott, and Eddie, um, were a cover band and they were doing Judas Priest songs and Scorpions and, and Van Halen and, and Iron Maiden songs. And there's always been a, an assumption that they only played five or six, uh, five or six gigs before they sort of, um, sort of disappeared and really honed their crafts and wrote these first four songs. Well, we found out that their very first gig they had, a, they had a singer who did one gig with them, and it was at the Ellensburg Juvenile Detention Center. What? They played... They played. That's called Central Washington University. The, yeah. Sorry, that was a bad joke. <laughs> uh, so, oh, so why are they playing music at a juvenile detention? I mean, um, huh? The, the story has it that, that um, they were looking to do a gig, and one of the parents was able to make this gig happen. So they, huh. they played in this auditorium with a bunch of juvenile delinquents <laughs> and it went down really well. And there was a lot of screaming and chair throwing and just like a rock concert. And uh, <laughs> so I had never heard that before. Uh, but, um, we, we, we got it corroborated and, um, yeah. So, so, wow. you know, there's just all kinds of fun stuff. Um, one of the more, in, I mean, we, we had an interview, um, that we had done with, uh, Kim Harris. Uh, he was a really, really great guy. He passed away this last October. Um, um, we had done a, a big interview for the rusted metal book and he was looking forward to the Queensryche book. Um, unfortunately we, we weren't able to get a copy of it to him before he passed, but, um, um, uh, that was a really great interview. We learned a lot of stuff about kind of the inner workings of the band. Um, Chris DeGarmo's brother, um, Mark, um, has been instrumental with uh, the band uh, during the time his brother was in the band um, with everything from, you know, um, his, his encouragement of his younger brother and helping get him started on a musical path. Um, 
also helping uh, the band with, um, he worked for Channel 5 as a photographer and was able to get him some opportunities for a video uh, at the time he worked for them and, and then became a, vid- a videographer. And um, he was also very instrumental in the Promised Land um, DVD. Um, not only filming it, but some of the, um, the technical work on it, but he, he, uh, he was the closest person to the band, um, and gave us some really great insights about Chris. And I think most hardcore fans really just want to know more about what's going on with Chris. Um, Mark, you know, just kind of told his story up to the time that he left the band, but we got a lot of really good, um, stories about when he and their younger brother, Kevin and their mom, single mom, um, were trying to just, you know, live, you know, and, and did a lot of moving around and kind of, they only had themselves and, and, um, so they were a really tight knit group and, and, um, some really great, some just really great stories. And, uh, those are the kinds of people that we really wanted to build our story around. We knew that we knew that the band wasn't interested um, from their lack of communication back to us. And like I mentioned, we we could build our narrative around the band with their quotes, but we really wanted to build this story based on um, fans, fr- family, promoters, pe- peers, um, we kept in the main narrative of the book, we kept our personal, our, our personal experiences with the band out. The, the three segments in the start of the book where the authors talk about Queen Drake and, and their, for their own personal, that's, mm-hmm. that was our time to talk about that. The rest of it, you know, we, we built it around everybody else's experience. And it, I think it worked out better that way. Um, cause we could tell the story we wanted to tell. Um, and we committed to ourselves and to anyone else we talked to, to that it wasn't going to be, it wasn't going to be a dirt book. We weren't going to be, mm-hmm. um, telling all these bad stories right. and all this stuff that everybody has in their life. Um, we wanted to keep it a positive story about celebrating this band. And that's what we did. And I, I, you know, in skimming some of the chapters about the, the, the less than great things, you know, the legal thing and all that, you guys did kept it very, uh, it wasn't just dry, but it was, it wasn't, it was very factual, but it wasn't like reading a court report. It was still good reading, but it wasn't, it was neutral. It was a fair and, you know, fair Right, and, and, and we're of, just, of, and we're using happened. their words. We're 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 using right. what right. they said went down, right. and so, right. Yeah. I think because I have to be irreverent, and and I think we're going to end our conversation about Queensrÿche with this line from your book, and this is a quote from uh, Roy Kahn. Do you know who that is? Does that ring a bell with you? Not necessarily. Uh, uh, it says, so it said Roy Kahn, Conception, and X Camelot. Is that ringing a bell with you? X Camelot? 
Mm-hmm. Anyway, the quote is, the two most important bands or artists for me are AHA and Jeff Tate from Queensryche. I'm not sure how those two bands can go together. I just don't. I, I'm sorry. I, I've been hung up on that for the last five minutes, looking at that going, what on earth? How on earth did somebody... Anyway, good on them. Well, you know, uh, that's that's art. That's art music, you know? Yeah. I mean, One person's floral yeah. pattern is another person's, uh, you know, right. flat black. <laughs> So what's next for you guys? Let's talk, let's, let's wrap this up with, with, with your, with your, is there another book in the works? You guys are releasing records. Um, what's, so what's going Northwest on with you guys? Metalworks started off um, as we were doing that, doing the rest of metal book. And then we, you know, we, we did the record label. Um, and yes, we have seven records out now and we have um, one additional record in the hopper. Uh, it's already gone to, well, gone to press, and we're in we're in line with everyone else in the world to get our records mm-hmm. pressed. Um, uh, a local band from the mid late eighties uh, called Slaughterhouse Five, um, okay. and uh, pretty excited about this. They were um, kind of a I don't know goth hard rock kind of metally gl- glittery kind of band. Had some cool songs. Had good stage presence. Um, they um, they were one of the bands who played our our last metal fest show in '19, and I think most people were interested in in them. They had the biggest crowd, and um, uh, not a lot of uh, they they really only put out a seven inch single back in like 1987, oh. 88. Um, so we're we're bringing a. a almost a full album. Um, it's going to be eight songs and, um, it's going to graphically be pretty cool. We've got some good ideas. Um, we have another record. Now are these, are these new songs or are these, are these songs that songs that they recorded, but weren't songs they had recorded back in the day and not released. That's, that's kind of how that's what we do. We, we uncover Mm -hmm. music from the past that never saw the light of day, uh, so again, we're kind of a bit like uh, rock and roll uh, uh, archaeologists finding those nuggets and then getting them into the light of the day. Is it where? Mm-hmm. No, it's, I think it's fabulous. So that's uh, no. Is there another another book? You guys kicking we around are, concepts? Yes, we are. We are talking uh, about developing a line of books. Um, in relationship to the Pacific Northwest. And, and so okay. we're rolling around some bands. Um, there are some bands that, uh, a couple of bands from the past that could support just a book on their own. Um, we're thinking mm-hmm. that we're probably going to be writing some books that would have two or three bands, you know, exclusively kind of thing. Um, right. It's still it's still kind of in its infancy right now, and and as much as I'd like to share with you, um, who who the next book we're looking at, uh, we're just trying to line up mm-hmm. the principles um, for this one. Uh, we would like this next book to be an authorized book, and knowing the okay. people in this band, I, I think that that can happen. I think that uh, it would okay. it, it would be welcome and and. Again, that would just be a kind of a, another step up and 
um, and give it all the credibility that a book ought to have. I, I'm not I'm not ashamed that we did a um, uh, an unauthorized book. Tons of unauthorized yeah. biographies are out there yeah. all the time. Harry Houdini died a mm-hmm. hundred years ago, and they're still writing books about him. Oh, you know? absolutely! No, no, and, there's um, no there's no but, stigma um, to that. But uh, it would be great to. Um, uh, there's there's so much great music in the Pacific Northwest, um, even new music coming out. Um, we just happen to be um, delving in the, you know, the uh, 70s to the mid 90s, and there's a lot of there's a lot of music still to get out. But yeah, we're gonna we're gonna keep writing books. We, um, awesome. We like it. We'll have That'd you back. Be on. Awesome. <laughs> yes, keep writing books. We'll keep you having back yeah. on. Be kind, of, kind of fun. Yeah. Well, it, soon it'll be like the Saturday Night Live skit where you get the five timers bathrobe. Have you ever seen those skits? Yes. <laughs> as long as we're not talking about shvetty balls and. Oh God! Come on! Oh my God! I was yeah. okay. All right. So. So as we wrap this up, where can people find the book? Where's the best place to get it? Where can they find the records you guys are doing? You know, yeah, self-promotion uh, time. Uh, you, can, um, you can go to nwmetalworksmusic.com. Uh, that's Northwest, Northwest metalworksmusic.com. And that's uh, NW, <laughs> N-E-T-A-L-W. <laughs> O-R-X music.com. So it's a little play on words. Um, we have a storefront um, where our our label records and CDs are available. Um, we have a couple other labels that we support, and it's all Northwest music. Uh, you can uh, order um, the paperback book. Uh, we still have a few of the limited uh, hardbacks available. And... Um, and and, and they're all they're all in color. We're going to put a link to Northwest Metalworks in the show notes. Folks can go there. We'll also put a link to all the other sites that we can find your stuff at. I really appreciate you being on the show. And I'm uh, looking forward to, I'm going to finish this book in the next night or so. And I look forward to knowing more about Queensryche than I've ever thought I needed to know because it's kind of cool. Excellent. All right, Brian. Thanks, Scott. Thanks, Join us next time for another episode of the Exploring Washington State podcast.